Welcome to episode two, season two, Cleveland State University Psychology Club podcast. Uh, as always, I am Kevin, joined by my partner. I'm Madhva. And in this episode, we talked to uh, Marco Antonio Hartman, who at the time of this recording was a part-time instructor at CSU. Um, at that time, he was in Case Western's uh, clinical psychology PhD program. Uh, he has since moved on to bigger and better things. He's at Stanford right now doing a postdoc. But yeah, while he was here, uh, he was my teacher for social psychology in, uh, when I was in undergrad. And um, we connected over some things that had nothing to do with psychology. In particular, we both have backgrounds in hardcore and punk rock music. And that was how I got to talking with him. And yeah, we had him on the show and it was a pretty great conversation. Um, you know, he kind of talked about how, um, are you, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I didn't know that, um, that you guys had background in punk rock music. We could have spent some time talking about that because I really like the punk rock stuff. <laughs> It was strange because um, we he was in Germany and I was in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, uh, we managed to be in a very niche uh, kind of uh, things at the same time that, that were overlapping. So, um, yeah, it was interesting to uh, encounter that in an undergrad classroom. Yeah. So, yeah, we talked to Marco about a little bit about how um, growing up in Austria near the borders of Italy and Yugoslavia, then the Yugoslavia sort of shaped his interest in psychology and uh, maybe more specifically social psychology. And uh, we talked a lot about how the nature of, you know, the communities that people are brought up in, how that can impact them and specifically how that can impact them negatively. Yeah. Uh, I also think we talked to him about how people end up holding some of the radical ideologies um, with, um, with their upbringings and the communities that they find themselves in, if, I'm, if memory serves me right. Yeah, and I know we talked a lot about how the um, experience of stress and particularly stress among people with, uh, uh, of lower social economic status, how that can kind of uh, impact things down the road for people as they... Uh, navigate the lifespan. Yeah, and uh, I really like that uh, part of the conversation. I think uh, Marco was um, really on point about how various socioeconomic factors kind of influence your life decisions um, with regards to various choices that people end up making. And that was something I was not really aware about before talking to him. Yeah, very, uh, very interesting stuff. So with nothing further, we give you Marco Antonio Hartman. Marco, welcome yeah. to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So Marco, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Yeah, so excited just, to be here. Are you psyched up for the podcast? I'm psyched up for the psych podcast. <laughs> okay, that's fantastic. So uh, this is a standard question that we ask everyone on the podcast. Um, so how did you get uh, into psychology what what were the things that pulled you towards studying it and uh, become a professional within the field as with every answer going forward I'm going to try to make it as concise as possible yeah. <clears throat> um, sometimes it's a challenge um, I first well, when I was younger, I always knew that I am really drawn to children that were younger than me, even when I was still a young child. Um, <clears throat> something about younger ones and elicited this feeling of um, taking care of them, leading them of sorts, uh, making sure that they don't hurt themselves or get in to any sort of shenanigans. <clears throat> um, and then going forward, I think growing up in a in an area, in a region um, in South Austria and a border country to Italy and Slovenia, it was at the time um, Yugoslavia, I was 
aware without necessarily having words, but I was aware uh, that there were uh, different groups in our population that had sometimes different sounding names or um, maybe customs. And <clears throat> it always struck me as strange how some of um, my peers would be treated somewhat differently. Um, not always worse, or at least it wasn't I wasn't cognizant of the the worst part if it was present. And it sort of struck me as odd uh, that sometimes they would be treated worse or systematically worse and that some um, didn't have the kind of standing that perhaps um, I had or my I had by association of my grandfather um, who used to be the community college's um, principal for a while. <clears throat> and so that was one piece. The other piece, and that was sort of the early 80s, the other piece was um, my grandfather and my grandparents survived World War II. Um, my grandfather lost uh, one of his legs. And the reality of the war was sort of always present in the sense that I could pick one leg that was hard because it was a prosthetic leg or the soft one that was his remaining leg. Um, in addition, what was the craziest and weirdest thing for me about it was that he sometimes experienced phantom limb pain. Yeah. And when you're eight, you're like, how in the heck is there a pain sensation when there is no physical body present. Yes. So, like, I don't think I, I ever asked why or what was going on. I just observed. And these were all seeds that were sown at the time of my earlier and middle childhood until my teenage years where um, I later lived in Germany and <clears throat> became more and more interested in um, sociopolitical contexts and how people um, have more than others, um, how people have um, or have more access to services or um, standing in society and um, I think it coupled with my interest in continuing or wanting to work with children and I first became actually a social worker, a clinical social worker, um, coming out of high school, finishing college, um, was involved in a lot of uh, playing music but also um, continuing sort of my interest in, in working with kids and families. And out of that work for six years with inner city children and part also um, kids with refugee background from um, Kurdistan or parts of um, Turkey or Iraq. Um, I realized that the counseling or therapeutic aspect about it was what drew me in the most, what I enjoyed the most of my work, uh, but I also quickly recognized how um, with a bachelor's, I was not truly equipped of meeting hmm. the needs of these families, and that caused some helplessness um, and uh, curiosity at the same time, which I tend to approach with, all right, let's learn some shit. <laughs> let's, let's figure this out. And um, so I went back to school. Yeah. Uh, so it, it seems to me that... Um, you have, um, on the surface at least, you have two interests that that might not strike to normal people as being linked. One would be interest in sociopolitical systems uh, and their impact. Uh, another is clinical psychology. Uh, do you, in your mind, kind of see a link between these two uh, uh, modes of inquiry when it comes to uh, psychology and dealing with uh, people and stuff like that? How could you... Uh, combine these two, um, both of them. Yeah, I think um, I think that's an accurate characterization. I always had a very strong personal interest in in sociological topics, <clears throat> and I think it was rooted, as I mentioned, right. Um, 
World War II that ended in 45 found a way to connect with my life in the early 80s uh, and throughout the 80s and the 90s as a child. Um, I heard stories about my uh, my grandfather um, returning from war and then many years, you know, when he came back from work sort of seeking privacy just in the woods by himself and it's like why why do you want to hang out in the woods and now of course I understand it was PTSD and he needed a place where he could cope away from his family Hmm. but also in order to protect his family probably from himself so that was pretty uh, for me a pretty clear connection I think that it is not something that um, I use on a daily basis for my core work of cognitive and behavioral work um, with families and children, um, but it is something that is helpful to have as a background, uh, particularly with the folks that I'm working with um, at Metro Health as a resident um, right now and have previously, um, people are connected to their communities and those communities shape experiences and those experiences, particularly when they are um, present in early childhood and infancy, um, very clearly, and the research is very um equivocal at this point um, very clearly have an impact on uh, neurological functioning, on pathways being created um, that then connect with physiological and psychological and cognitive functioning, behavioral functioning. What I mean with that is that down to our neurophysiology um, patterns or pathways are being created based on the kinds of stressors we have, how often these stressors are experienced uh, in early childhood and adolescence, Um, and they are directly correlated with a number of mental health as well as physical health, um, public health concerns that we have, including cancer, alcohol substance abuse, depression, um, gastrointestinal disorders, um, heart disease, etc. So, do you have, uh, yeah, what are, how are some of, um, what are some specific ways that you've seen um, some of these issues that you're talking about like manifested and, and, and what are some of them that you've focused on a bit in, in your research? So I wasn't really aware that I think about <clears throat> research questions or clinical questions um, until I was asked to explain sort of my theoretical uh, <laughs> orientation as well as my research interests um, prior to or as I was applying to residency or internship Um, and I think more or less it always boils down to uh, the connection of individual functioning or in in a child or a particular disorder or or behavior um, and how it connects or may be predicted by family functioning family parenting um, that could be something like the amounts of times that parents um, emote in the family meaning showing living out a lot of um, intense emotions in front of their children. Um, That could be anger, anxiety, deep sadness, like depression. Um, It could be something that the parent does in terms of like how much or how little warmth are they expressing 
um, as a form of social support in difficult periods? Or is the kind of um, support behavioral of nature with clear um, expectations plus warmth? Or is the kind of parenting marked by psychological control, which would be shaming them, which would uh, include factors such as um, making them feel bad about what they did, being punitive without giving them any credit in in terms of like the effort they put in, but only focusing on the negative outcomes, um, little positive reinforcement. And then um, how does that relate A, to the disorder or the, the, the outcome, the symptoms, as well as some internal resources or risk factors. Sometimes it also relates to what kinds of adverse experiences did you have. Um, bullying, based on um, weight concerns or appearance concerns, how did that, sort of social environment factors. Um, and then the demographic factors, you know, what's the income level of your family? What is the um, educational attainment in your family, or at least of your primary caregiver? Um, what would be, did I say race, ethnicity? No. Um, yeah. So um, obviously these factors, these demographic factors, are intercorrelated with them itself, but they can have, in certain situations, have uh, impact on family resources. So I'm going to break it down in a way that it perhaps is less esoteric. So you might have less income, uh, belong to a marginalized um, ethnic or racial group. Um, therefore, it is going to be harder for your parents or your family to attain a certain level of education because, heck, we have little money. We have to perhaps work more. Um, we're barely making it. Where's the time to raise children and go to school at the same time, right? You might not even know, depending on what family your parents come from, how to even apply for a FAFSA or any sort of um, resources and, and, and um, grants, scholarships. So you live in that and you're a child in that family and your parents might live under a constant moderate to high-level stress, um, chronic stress, toxic stress, in an environment that perhaps um, is marked by little policing, therefore less security, less safety, um, a number of <coughs> factors uh, that therefore also increase your levels of stress as a child or as an adolescent. And your parents have less uh, opportunities to buffer you from those stressors, right? You grow up in perhaps an environment, and I'm, I'm, I'm painting a very stark picture, a stereotypical picture perhaps, but these are realities that we see in Cleveland in particular um, pretty frequently and in other places in the nation as well. So you can see how perhaps those stressors directly um, onto you as a young person, as well as indirectly through your parents. Maybe they have mental health or substance use problems. Maybe they have experienced interpersonal violence. So now you get that indirect effect of that as a young person. Um, so there are cumulative effects of that. And that can then, again, influence, you know, how is the parent able to parent based on the stresses that they have? Is that clear how these larger systems trickle down into certain effects that if you have certain individual psychological risk factors, you might be more prone to react with anxiety or anger how they trigger you in a certain way because there's a higher risk involved in your environment and factors that no person, especially not a young person, can control. So it, it kind of like flies in the face of this idea that, um, oh, well, if you want to get ahead in life, you just need to like 
pull yourself up by your bootstraps, bootstraps. and if you just tried harder, it's my favorite if, thing. If you just Not. stopped being poor, um, then right. uh, things would be great. And it's um, and what you're saying, it sounds like, is to do that in the face of um, this burden of stress um, and all of the factors that go along with it. I mean, are they so one, maybe even beyond additive and multiplicative uh, that to be able to do some of, you know, these bootstrap picking up type things, hmm. it would it would be strange in, in a lot of instances that somebody might be able to do that given the um, the burden that like they're yeah, carrying. Yeah, I mean, and the data is pretty clear on that, right? It's just that it's inconvenient for a certain part of the political spectrum. And I have to say that as a European in the United States, as a person that grew up in Western Europe um, and lived there for 30 years, um, I've seen a wealthy society um, much similar to that of the United States, but with um, some significant differences with regard to access to services and the broadband availability of health care for everyone at no or little cost. Um, to give you an example, and I use that a lot in classes, uh, um, or when I even talk to colleagues is that before I moved to the United States 12 years ago I was never exposed I never met anyone that was that had a medical problems that would burden them financially I never met anyone that had a medical uh, bankruptcy or knew anyone that knew anybody else with any of that stress right in the meantime I know of people who are at risk of dying because they can't afford the um, uh, insulin for the, you know, for themselves or someone that has the choice between um, eating themselves and buying themsel uh, their kids some insulin. Hmm. So when you live in a world where in your life's reality you either know people or you know, or you are one of those people that lives with that kind of knowledge while you're, you know, you, you might be just working your job, you went to school. Um, I can see that being a, a huge burden. And uh, I mean, we know that uncertainty is related directly to stress and generalized anxiety and sometimes panic. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know how anyone would explain that a person that has gone to school and did everything that, you know, you would suspect a productive member of society to do, um, I don't know a person who would live in that situation and not have significant long-standing stress and the effects of, on, on their lives and that of their children. I don't know if that directly answers the question about the bootstraps but it yeah. sort of exemplifies what's going on with that issue it just becomes way harder for people to do that right and there's a yeah. difference between equity and equality right so yeah. equity is so equality would be everybody gets the same shot but it doesn't account for where do you start out whereas equity makes sure that everybody has the same shot taking into account where do you start out in life hmm. right so providing services um, not cutting them um, expanding services not cutting them this what? is also reminding me or go ahead uh, I was just curious to ask uh, you mentioned that you worked with some of the people from uh, Middle East uh, Turkey, Iraq, and mm -hmm. things like that, refugees from, the past, the, yeah. Yeah, from those places. Mm -hmm. And now you work with people here in U.S. and marginalized, marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. So when you work with these families and children, what type of differences do you see in the problems that they face? And also, what type of commonalities do you see in the types of problems they face? I think that's a fantastic question, and I'm not sure I'm equipped to answer that well enough for the fact that when I worked in Germany um, with these families, 
I had a bachelor's degree. Mm. Um, and there was sort of a mixture of a problem between social work and early childhood education. And now I'm like nine months away from having a clinical psychology PhD and a specialization in uh, pediatric psych um, from CASE. So what I see now and how conceptualized cases now is vastly different from what I saw then. Hmm. But that being said, <clears throat> you can, I don't know if it's, it's all that complex. I mean, Two things. One, yeah, all, no matter where you come from, uh, some basic values or basic desires and aspirations are the same no matter where you come from, right? You want safety, security, um, enough resources, shelter, um, in many cases, opportunities to move forward with life, and that often comes through education or uh, opportunities to. Um, be creative through entrepreneurship or and sorts. Um, you know, we all want to, we all want to grow up in safety and, and have, you know, as, as stereotypical and cliche American as it sounds, but it's the pursuit of happiness, right? It is valid and relevant. Um, I see however that um, so that that applies to the kids that I saw and worked with in Germany and to the families and children that I see here the difference that I see is that say the Kurdish or Turkish kid with migration background in Germany had more access and more opportunities to resources um, than people that live in the United States that are really poor and coming from a very low socioeconomic status. <clears throat> they don't have to fight for that um, or struggle to find access for that. I will say the gap between the poorest of the poor or the lowest uh, socioeconomic status in the United States is higher than any other European country that I've ever visited. Um, I've lived in two European countries. Um, my dad is from another European country, that is Italy. Uh, and through music, I traveled quite a bunch throughout Europe. So in terms of Western countries, I haven't seen it to that extent. Um, and that trickles down to educational attainment, opportunity, general um, knowledge about things in the world. Because um, of the gaps or the, the differences between education, um, life expectancy between neighborhoods. I mean, there's about a 12 year or so a difference in life expectancy. Um, in areas uh, on the east side of Cleveland um, that that are about five to six miles apart, right? You can be in Lyndhurst or you can be in East Cleveland or Collingwood um, and you know that you're gonna uh, typically have a life expectancy into your early 80s in Lyndhurst and one uh, that's sort of at the late 60s or early um, 70s um, in in Collingwood. Um, you also know that if you are of color and have a baby that your baby is umpteenth amounts more likely to die based on just that. I mean we have a giant black infant mortality crisis in this city and in, in the whole country. Um, so that at a level that goes above and beyond people's lack of motivation to pull themselves up uh, by the bootstrap, right? It goes above and beyond um, economic equity even, or equality. Um, it is, there are some long-term studies out now um, <clears throat> explainable by 
by um, differences in, in, in treatment for whites and, or, um, and, and non-whites. Hmm. <coughs> Access to treatment. You were saying something. Did you uh, forgot that point? Because yeah, I forgot what I yeah. was going to say so, at this point. So I'm just curious to know that there, I mean, there are some counterexamples too where people who grew up in extreme poverty are able to like leave that trap and like mm -hmm. at least pull themselves from the bootstraps mm -hmm. since we are using that. Mm -hmm. So what is it that they do that is different? Uh, I know those examples are rare and very few, but uh, the reason behind me asking is, is there something like resilience or some other protective factors that could potentially come to the aid of people who find themselves in circumstances that are uh, extreme and not usually because of the fault of their own? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think we are starting to better understand as a science, uh, as a discipline, uh, what resilience is and how to be, how to frame it, hmm. um, and the effects of it. I don't know if I can give you a great answer on what the differences are. I'm not super familiar with the research in that particular area. That being said. Some general factors um, that I think do matter are resilience, but resilience also is something that um, might be taught and might be fostered and reinforced um, through a mentor. Might not necessarily be your parent or a grandparent or someone. It might be something that you were able to learn. I mean, it's a learned behavior, right? Um, it's doing something sticking with your goals and your values and working towards your aspirations in the face of adversity. Hmm. <clears throat> and it seems one of the biggest factors that I'm aware of at this point are two. One is intelligence which is a biologically determined factor, um, which sort of my the part of my mind or my ex, um, my my values that is um, very pro-human and um, sort of or could be characterized in the United States as liberal. Um, that's sad about that fact, but it is something that is biologically determined. That being said, it also is amenable to um, nutrition yes. and um, micronutrients, right? Yeah. Um, that's why um, some very famous, and I'm going off on a tangent once again, but some very famous uh, um, rich people, such as Bill Gates, spend a lot of time and money and resources um, in areas such as Central and South America to um, provide these micronutrients so that you can have a cognitively higher attaining workforce that then therefore is able to attain higher education yeah. and therefore has a sort of a working economy that provides um, economies and countries with um, safety, with uh, food, uh, with quality of life. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's true. The, we were just talking about this um, in the afternoon. Uh, the, I think the reason behind that is that the proper nutrition that you provide to children would, because of the fact that the population is very high within the developing countries, uh, there is bound to be some genius somewhere who is, uh, who, who if given the right circumstances and nutrition yeah. might just come up with like, uh, answer to global warming or something like that. Yeah. Right. So uh, the one of the things that has been put on priority. Uh, with regards to what uh, Gates is doing with this Gates Foundation is to make sure that infant mortality rate is make sure the infant mortality rate decreases mm -hmm. but besides that also increase the quality of food that is being given right. uh, to children within this critical age period so that right. uh, yeah, yeah. so matter. people are able to reach the potential so we would just we would think that intelligence there sh there could be a cap for the iq level that you can have right but, but you can also f 
fall short of reaching that correct yeah cap yeah so uh, i think that's a, that's something that 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 he's doing which is great yeah i do think yeah so i know you can see how this again this is a factor you don't control as a as a person or as a family yeah. right that is something that so i mean there's big things you can have like the educational piece you can have the sort of uh, engineering piece of like hey you know in terms of public health um, let's not have water boilers that send out water 200 plus degrees uh, because then we'll see a lot of burnt kids right and then you can go to legislative way um, and I think um, in any event or in any case the latter two of the examples are working at the source of the issue whereas the education piece is given the people resources in our case as psychologists it's interventions through uh, psychotherapy um, but there's only so much you can do with that right um, and there's there's a point where when you wonder why you have so many kids with symptoms of learning disorders and symptoms of inattention and disruptive behavior, then you should, you know, from a particular part of the city or the neighborhood, uh, you can start maybe asking yourself, so rather than just keep putting a patch on the symptoms, and it's necessary, right? But you also, um, meaning therapy and education, perhaps psychopharmacology um, uh, interventions, but that can only be one thing. You also got to start asking the question of, well, what's the source of the issue? Right? Could be uh, lead in the pipes in the water. Could be lead in the housing stock. To take one relevant, important example that we deal with in Cleveland, um, perhaps at the level uh, that Flint is dealing with, perhaps even at a level that is higher than that. Hmm. Yeah. So right, so so. Um, so you mentioned there are two factors: one being intelligence, and well, I guess, yeah. So I think what I mean is like we have our classic science that we are at home with, and I think that's important and is a badass, right? We have interventions uh, that work, um, that are effective and efficacious in clinical trials as well as in uh, practice. Um, but we are, in some cases, limiting perhaps our opportunity to um, work in a broader, with broader brushes and other systems that also matter um, for our patients and for, you know, from a public health standpoint, from a population health standpoint. Um, I want to throw out um, a number. Um, more recent research indicates that about 20% of your health outcomes are determined by what doctor you're seeing and which hospital you're going, what kind of meds you're taking. The other 80% are psychosocial aspects, um, demographic health aspects. Um, how safe is your living environment? Have you been exposed to um, any violence uh, as a child? Have your parents been uh, divorced um, when you were, were a child? Um, was there any mental health issues of your parents or caregivers uh, in your chi uh, childhood? Um, <clears throat> any accidents, any chronic um, health conditions, uh, financial trouble? Um, was there any neglect, um, any psychological or physiological um, trauma or abuse, any sexual assault? So we know we can we can look at these questions and say just yeah they were there. We're not, we're not even at the point where we're asking like how bad did you get messed up by them, but we can just ask where are you there and then see yeah well you got one of those factors checking off, then we know you're already at the risk of probably having more than one of these factors that I just mentioned. But also we see later on you're gonna have a higher um, we see higher levels of heart disease, diabetes, obesity, um, substance um, abuse uh, disorders, and behavioral or emotional um, disorders. <clears throat> so, right? So, so it goes back to the point of, I think, building healthcare systems going forward in a way that we address 
in the communities with prevention, with better housing stock, with providing accommodations and services in the communities. Because we can have all the best healthcare in the world, and, and we know we're, we're right there at the Cleveland Clinic, it's just up the road, and I mean, they're doing fantastic work. It's amazing. And all of Cleveland and Northeast Ohio clearly benefits from it, no matter where health or mental health professionals end up working later, many of them train at UH or at the clinic as well. But it's only for a smaller amount of people and for those who can afford it, right? Um, <clears throat> so I think it matters. Um, Metro has really interesting um, sort of vision going forward to address those things um, in the sense that they are building um, around their main campus in the new hospital that's being built. They um, work on building housing that's affordable for low-income families. So it's going to be sort of a neighborhood kind of. Here's parks, here's educational gatherings. Um, um, and, and it's trying to get the people involved with their health providers and and, um, and I think that is um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this is going to involve, evolve um, I would think in the long term as well I mean I guess we don't really know yet but um, that that would actually be much more cost effective than what what you're describing sounds like just constantly plugging like one hole in the dike after another when like the whole thing is in danger of you know maybe i'm exaggerating mm -hmm. but like mm -hmm. yeah know, if, if you fix the the dike itself rather than continue right. to plug the holes then you know you're probably going to save yourself uh, a lot of hassle in the long term yeah I th yeah um so depending on which problems you look in particular um and i'm including health as well as mental health concerns and also depending on which studies you look at but I think the last numbers that I heard were for every prevention dollar we spend and again I don't know if that's a prevention dollar we spend for adults or if we already start spending that for childhood and adolescence but for every prevention dollar we spend we save about 18 to 22 dollars uh, in services later on <clears throat> so imagine every dollar just imagine the amounts of dollars not spent early on for prevention. What that costs later on, if you say, like, let's take, let's take like $10 million, how many more dollars that becomes? What a burden on the healthcare system um, that becomes. And also the idea, and I have to track back, the idea that why should, you know, I hear this a lot, why should I pay for someone else's health insurance? For someone else's health behaviors when they, when they know that they shouldn't smoke or take drugs or live healthier or why the hell can't they get some food at Whole Foods, right? Um, I mean, aside from uh, the not very helpful um, attitude about that, um, the issue there is you're paying for it anyway, and you're paying for it in the most expensive way possible, and that is through the emergency departments of our country, which is the most expensive aspect of health care intervention and service at I mean by it's not even there's not even a close second um, it's also so so the emergency departments are being you know um, they have to take people they have to treat people they um, they're financed by public funding um, I will also say another example that I tend to use is now you ask yourself if you were to spend money in some communities that really need it. Right? Well, first of all, the communities that don't have a lot of money, that's a, a problem that people created about 100 years ago, particularly in Cleveland with redlining, red zoning districts. 
right? So lower lower um, housing stock, no, not getting mortgages, uh, therefore um, less uh, tax uh, taxable um, homes and, and properties, therefore less money left over for schools and health cares uh, in those communities. So, but guess what? Wouldn't isn't there a chance, and I, and I understand Cleveland in particular is very segregated, um, among the most segregated cities in the country. But wouldn't you or wouldn't you feel safer or better knowing that these kids don't have to ask themselves whether it would be easier to finish high school and maybe go into a vocational school or a community college uh, if they didn't have that choice to make uh, and weigh it with, well, maybe I'm just going to sell some weed and some other stuff. Um, you know, in the best, uh, or in, in the best, I'm, I'm being facetious here, um, in, in, in the best slash worst situations to your kids, you know, to your suburban homes. Um, you know, if you don't want that, then maybe you should want to spend, now that we, if you connect the money, preventative money that you know you, you can spend, you can, within two generations, probably change the amount of money that we're spending for healthcare, right? We have the highest cost of any country, of any country in the world, that we spend on healthcare. Um, we also have some of the best, if not, if you can afford it, you have the best healthcare in the world barn you know but if you can't you also have some of the poorest um, worst health care uh, in the western hemisphere well it just makes me think anecdotally of uh, I mean everyone I, I think knows somebody that either to your point about the emergency rooms being this massive drain on our right. economic uh, system people that don't have any kind of insurance or anything like that that basically use the emergency room as their mm -hmm. A doctor's office, or people that you know have a legitimate health concern that don't have insurance, that don't want to go to a doctor or an emergency room, that say like I'll just you know like stick it out, and then how much does that end up costing in the long term? Um, right. But There's also a, yeah. something else that you know you were talking about, you know, you, you kind of mentioned a couple of uh, like uh, behaviors that manifest in in, in these environments. Uh, you know, like turning to drugs or mm -hmm. um, or crime or just you know making what would be considered you know like poor decisions and that makes me think of um, a lot of the research that Robert Sapolsky has done and you know mm -hmm. kind of looking at human behavior on this neurobiological level and I think he says something along the lines I'm gonna heavily paraphrase but you know this idea that you know if you're experiencing what you've been describing this like allostatic load mm -hmm. this like type of like stress that's just you know like chronic that at the times when stress is elevated and that you need to make you know what would be considered a good decision in the might yeah. be a difficult decision in the yeah. short term but good in the long term versus something that might give some kind of relief in the short term but right. be worse in the long term that in that state of stress it would be kind of weird if you made yeah. the better long-term decision yeah yeah um, I'm glad you brought that up I'm so Robert Sapolsky being not a psychologist but um, a physiologist I think I, I think he's he studies it I think he's an ethologist, behavioral ethologist yeah. or something. Yeah. His work is basically on stress. I, I think he studied right. that on, uh, uh, I don't know, some, hands, I think. Yeah, some species of monkeys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, um, I'm, right. Apes, yes, and some species of apes. Uh, I think baboons. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, my biology is not up to the mark, so... Uh, yeah, there's a fantastic book that he wrote, um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And yes. it is about this fight or flight and a stress response and the physiological, biological um, burden uh, the system takes um, in stress responses, but also particularly when it is sort of chronically stressed. Right? Yeah. So a lot of what we know and what's applied in our field uh, when we have some psychophysio elements in the research is um, obviously heavily informed by similar or the, the kinds of studies that he's done and by similar studies that, um, in that field. And 
Yes. So the idea of that is that I mean, you know, we can we can all think about it for a second, right? So if you are coming to campus, you know you got a pretty heavy test in front of you, you didn't sleep very well, you're running late, there is an accident on the way in, um, and you are definitely now going to be late. You had the feeling the last couple of times, subjectively speaking, that your professor was sort of grumpy and did definitely not seem to care much about any sort of life circumstances happening. You might feel like uh, on the way there, you know, there's only some, um, you, you're, you're probably going to be late. So in those moments, you're, you're, you're pretty tense, you get taxed cognitively uh, because you're having all these thoughts and then you have the cortisol um, hormone and um, you know, spare us all with the, the details of it but right so problem is that it can impair um, memory formation but also um, recall of memories right um, it may make it it taxes our um, self-regulatory systems meaning behavioral regulation so Hey, normally I don't cuss at people, but now I'm so stressed because of all these things, so now I'm just going to start yelling in the car or, you know, I don't know, like walk into class and then the test gets really, you feel like you performed poorly and then uh, walk out and the next person that talks to you or your girlfriend or boyfriend or whoever you speak to, you just snap at them, right? Yeah. Um, normal Under normal circumstances, you might be able to inhibit that behavior, to regulate yourself, your emotions. But if you are chronically in a state that I just described, not just temporarily, you can still, with good certainty and decision, um, or appropriate decision-making in any other situation determine what's appropriate and not appropriate behavior, what's better to do and, not, uh, and, and worse to do in the situations. You know right from wrong, but your system and your neural pathways, particularly if that's the environment you grew up in, are always going to override Oh, not always, I should not say always, but or have um, at a much higher um, likelihood to override your inhibition, your self-regulation. That means you're much more likely to react with anger, with disruption, with cussing, with, um, and then as a secondary reaction to that, you might have then just um, damaged, you know, an important relationship, whether it is to your boss, to your mentor, your professor, uh, your parents, your romantic partner, um, and then you get sad, right? So um, how do you cope with it? Oh, I'm being more angry and more frustrated, right? So and, and, and people get caught up in that. Hmm. And this is, I mean, it goes back to sort of childhood adversity and childhood trauma. Guess who sits in jails and prisons? Guess how their life looked like? So I think Sapolsky in, in, a, in a podcast brought up something really interesting. When we look at the enormous progress that science has made in terms of behavioral health, uh, in terms of um, understanding the impact of psychological behavioral health aspects to physical health and vice versa, and how that informs our treatment and approaches and medications and all of that, it's remarkable. And now we want to contrast that with perhaps our um, criminal justice system. And you see, well, our criminal justice system still operates the way that it operated about 200 years ago or, you know, longer. I mean, I'm no expert, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if 200 years ago is correct, but it definitely didn't take these findings into account as other um, disciplines do. And I mean, it just takes us away a lot from psychology. But I do think, you know, Cleveland County Jail is a good example for having a high number of suicides. I mean, an exorbitant kind of um, highly concerning number of suicides. 
um, reports of abuse, physical abuse. Um, so I think it is important to consider our expertise uh, to implement and integrate behavioral health, not only in regular health care, like, like um, primary care, like what I do a lot at Metro, or uh, GI, or functional um, disorders and pain-related stuff, or diabetes, right? I mean, everything is behavior, and every behavior comes with thoughts and has thoughts and other behaviors and emotions as consequences, as well as antecedents. So if everything is behavior, why aren't we using some of those research findings to integrate more of it to, um, in other aspects of our world? And that would also be justice reform, criminal justice reform, and have psychologists and behavioral health providers be a regular part of staff so that when a um, person in jail reacts with anger and aggression towards uh, a correction employee, is that how you call him? Correction officer? I don't know. I think correction officer sounds pretty close. We'll yeah. go with that. All right. Um, that, you know, this was not them just being a douche or a criminal, right? It was, it came, you might have triggered something that is way, way older and way, way longer ago than them being in jail or in prison. And, you know, to your point about the, like, like the medical, like the, the medical side as far as, you know, like physical health and, um, and trying and, and, and that everything being behavior and um, I mean how many people go to their doctors and have their doctors tell them like okay like you need to like stop eating this and start eating this or uh, make sure you take your medication or do this stuff that mm-hmm. um, I'm sure for a lot of them like not being you know if they're not trained you know and are aware of how behavior plays in all this mm-hmm. like they might just be frustrated and be like i tell these people every day to stop mm-hmm. smoking and they keep smoking like i don't know what's going on here right but you know it's like to your point like yeah it's everything and they go further right it frustrates people it frustrates doctors um it it may make it may trigger feelings over years of um you know, helplessness or not being effective and, and sort of a certain burnout or delusionment. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, again, so one of the major aspects of where healthcare is moving today is um, integrating behavioral health into regular medical health services. Um, it definitely came, so anywhere where you have kids and kids interacting with parents, you tend to have more behavioral health integration. Um, <clears throat> but it does continue to expand in the adult healthcare world as well. Um, I, mean, I once, so, well, let me backtrack. So one example would be um, treatment adherence, which you just mentioned, right? So changing of diet. Um, it's not that easy. Uh, so you've got to change diets. Changing habits is hard, and it's harder for most people and hard, um, even harder than that for some, right? Um, and then again, do you have the resources? Do you f- sleep enough? Do you even know where to get food that is healthy? Do you even know what healthy food entails or not? How often do you get to eat? I've treated kids that get their only regular, somewhat healthy meal in school. Not on the weekends, not when they get home. We have neighborhoods that are food deserts, and that means no fresh food availability in a radius or in a, um, of, I don't know, several miles, but not not enormous, right? But hard to bridge without regular or reliable transportation. How much can you buy if you gotta get on the RTA and then schlep home, right? Um, so those are sort of those questions. So you gotta be culturally aware and humble enough to understand that you cannot just prescribe some 
well-intentioned changes if you don't understand sort of the circumstances in which the families or the kids are presenting. Um, and then you can work on problem solving, making small steps, small implementations, attainable goals, right? That sort of thing in, 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 in any sort of therapeutic intervention. It's sort of like you don't want to overwhelm the, the, the clients or patients with, with a litany of, of things they got to change all at once where they crumble, then come back, it's not working, and then they never show up in therapy again because it was just not attainable. Yeah, I mean, like the overwhelm, I would think that would go along with like having, you know, like you said, a litany of issues that need to be addressed. Like that overwhelm would, I would think, just trigger more of the maladaptive behavior that's yeah, can. In, involved yeah. that you're trying to correct in the first place. Yeah, so to, so you're getting at the point of perhaps um, in, inadvertently um, contributing to the problem or, or, or um, exacerbating the issue rather than treating it. Well, yeah, and I think that's tricky, right? Um, so I, I tend to call it sort of creative adherence. So doing a little bit of what the doctor said, but after a while you might not do it exactly, and then you change a little bit. And what matters often in, in successful treatment is consistency, right? Um, it matters often also in symptom management. Do a little less but then do that consistently rather than doing too much and then that inconsistently. Hmm. I think that's a, maybe a good rule of thumb. Yeah. So um, maybe this could be our last question. Um, uh, where do you see hope in all of this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, do you, like from a clinical psychology perspective, do you think there could be certain therapeutic interventions that are better suited for people who are coming from this background. I know we talked at a very broad uh, systems level where having these types of systems uh, are hurting people. But mm. maybe if you're trying to talk, uh, look at these things at an individual level, maybe there is something, some sort, sort of therapeutic interventions, particularly maybe CBT or something like that, mm -hmm. that could be much more helpful for people to overcome these challenges. Is yeah. there any research that pertains to that? So I'm not sure I'm followed the question. So where's the hope in that? Like in the sense that we talked about how these various systems yeah. oh. are, are adversely affecting individuals. But now when we, we are, if, if I put my clinical psychologist hat on, mm -hmm. can there be certain uh, intervention systems that could be used that successfully helps people somewhat to overcome these systematic challenges that they faced yeah um, I think so. um, that's what that is the rewarding part about what I think the rewarding part for me in clinical psychology and in treating uh, kids is to provide tools mm. um, that aim at increasing self-efficacy um, positive changes um, relief um, and that comes surprisingly easy even if you just listen and um, reflect back and provide empathy, right? Um, but that alone isn't it because everybody can do that, um, you know, to a degree or almost everybody. Um, but I think um, that is sort of the piece where you when as a provider I see that some um, or many families um, when they apply the tools the, the things they practiced in session that you worked with them on session when they start to apply that more and more as coping tools um, and when you know their symptoms become less frequent or less in number or uh, less intense um, or they last shorter periods of time um, I mean that's that's um, exciting because that provides an immediate or near immediate um, improvement um, I guess my long-standing talk about the broader issues are is we know this works and we've done really well with this and we should continue to work on this. 
I think we, as we are being trained as not only as treatment providers, but also as research um, people or that know how to consume research, um, we think a lot about things in a very systemic um, way. And I think um, there is a big place for us in educating, explaining, and creating the type of data that also supports broader changes on broader levels for prevention, right? For uh, that, that give us the kinds of data uh, that may change and should change um, functioning for um, or the levels of um, how children or people that are now children, then adolescents and later adults, at what level they can attain education, function, have a quality of life that is perhaps higher, have relationships that um, stay together rather than fall apart, um, anything that sort of relates back to the human condition and, and, and how well people are doing. Um, I see the hope, to go back to your initial question, in the fact that if you move just far back enough in history, that most often, um, and I mean very clearly, we moved the needle in the right direction more or less, right? If you go back several hundreds of years, well, not even that long, right? Um, we seem pretty, yeah, we seem, right, yeah. Ask a black person if they wanna move back in time and if we're you know back towards the 70s or later or earlier tends to be not such you know usually my my experience was like usually no thanks you know like I'm, I'm not gonna do that that doesn't seem like a great place to go um, right now I don't know how many of them also would want to move into the future but that's a different topic <laughs> um, but that being said you know I think very personally, my peoples, my where I come from or where my parents and grandparents come from, we have seen and committed the greatest atrocities in modern human history, if not all of human history or known recorded human history, and um, with the Holocaust and the Shoah and and um, systematic eradication of, of, of non-German people. And um, just two generations after that, I was able to have Jewish friends and, um, and friends that are transgender and friends that are from countries that used to be our enemies. Um, so, Sometimes that historical view um, is also the piece that then gives me the piece of hopefulness and and um, and uh, fuels my efforts to continue working in what I'm working on. If that makes any sense, that makes yeah, a lot of sense. I think that's a good place to stop. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming down and talking with us. Thanks. That was awesome. Appreciate it.